0: for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15pm Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are, or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we'd like to thank our newest patron, Caroline, and a huge shout out to our patron, Rona, who upgraded their pledge. Also... We have our first live show coming up on November 18th. That will be at Caveat NYC. And the ticket link is in our bio. Early bird tickets are $18 and you can get live stream tickets for $10. Patrons get a 15% discount and we are so excited to see you guys there.
1: Yes, we are. Hi, listeners. It's Becca in the intro. I know you're not used to hearing me, but here I am. Becca has some exciting news to share. Yeah, I didn't know how to do this for you guys, so I figured I'd just pop into the intro now and let you know there has been a proposal. Graham, the sound effect. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I just wanted to let you know that my boyfriend, Mike, who is previously Mike of Mike Takes is now my fiancé Mike of Mike Takes. We're getting married. And yes. so I followed the instructions to stay proper and find myself a husband. Um, so yeah, just some exciting news from the pod world.
0: Yeah, we just wanted to pop that on so that you can all uh, yell congratulations at Becca and yeah. uh, and Mike. Yes,
1: yes. Make sure you share your Mike Takes of Mike being great and doing he also totally nailed the proposal so Uh, yeah he's such a bingley and you're such a jane and you guys are just (laughs) perfect yes no proposal getting happened here he was he didn't say one mean thing about my family the
2: entire time
0: he was asking (laughs) me to marry him uh so anyway that is all we had to say to you today so without further ado please
1: enjoy the second half of our coverage of emma 1996 starring gwyneth paltrow Mm. Becca, this is Molly, We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Emma! Emma. Listeners, if you're new here, I, Becca, have read many Jane Austen novels before and watched many adaptations.
0: And I, Molly, am doing that for the first time through this podcast. If you want to hear Molly read
1: through... Pride and Prejudice, or Sense and Sensibility for the first time, you can listen to seasons one and two of this podcast respectively, but that is not what we're doing here
0: today. No, today we are talking about the second half of the 1996 filmed version of Emma, starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Who's that? And we are joined today by Jillian and Yolanda from the Pemberley Podcast. Hello.
2: Hello again. Hello. Hello again. Usually
1: we joke around with our guests if we are uh, having them back for a second half of a movie and being like, it's been so long since we've seen you, but it actually has been a few weeks since we've seen you. We kind of like segmented our recording on this a little bit.
3: Yeah, but... um you know, um, let's see how much we still remember. I was like kind of like still looking through the movie and I was like, I know this. Like I've seen this stuff enough times to know what happens, you know?
0: Yeah, totally. So uh, listeners, if you want to hear more about Julian and Yolanda and what they do in the Austin world, you can go back and listen to our previous episode with them covering the first half of this movie. But today we have a lot to cover, so we're just going to dive right in. Oh, yes. So where we left off, where
1: did we leave off? She just met Frank Churchill, a.k.a. Hillary Clinton, Ewan
0: McGregor, wig disaster. Yes. Yes. So that's where we left off. And after she meets him, Emma is in town and she runs into Miss Bates and tells her that she met Frank. And Miss Bates is asking all about him and saying she can't wait to meet him at the Coles party. And Emma is like, what party and immediately spirals because she was not invited to a party. And it's brilliant. She like has the, her, the mail hidden underneath her dress and her dad's like, did the mail come? And she's like, I never pay attention to the mail. And then she's <laughs> secretly like looking through it. This does a really good job of portraying exactly how low stakes Emma's life is because
1: this becomes a very high drama situation for her.
0: Yes. She goes to the party and they're gossiping about the pianoforte that has been sent to Jane. And in this adaptation, Frank actually plants the idea in Emma's head that Mr. Dixon sent it, which is different from the book in which Emma comes up with that on her own.
3: I What I do love about this version. Well, I think I, I love this about every version because, you know, if, if you people don't know Emma at this point, spoilers ahead, but You know they are secretly engaged, Jane Fairfax and um, Frank Churchill, and so I I love watching the scenes where he's trying not to pay attention to her or trying not to care about her or I don't know just like feigning disinterest. And so I kind of like that creative choice because he's trying to be like, oh, it was Mister Dixon. Like I think in the book it's sort of more like Emma brings that up and she's kind of and he's kind of like do I need to be like jealous of this guy? Like, do I need to feel some kind of way? And in this one, he's the one who's like, he he's already got defenses up. He's already got a plan.
1: Yeah, and I also think it does this thing where it sort of tries to abdicate responsibility of Emma for her gossiping about Jane because it puts the the bad behavior on Frank
2: first mm-hmm. and makes Emma only along for the ride. Yeah. Which she's happy to be along for the ride. She's like, well, tell me more. I want that, I want to know all the gossip <laughs>
0: totally. Then Mrs. Weston comes up with the idea that since Knightley sent his carriage for Jane to come to this party, he and Jane are secretly a couple. And Emma's like, "'Oh my God, no. Like, you're so bad at this, Mrs. Weston. Stop while you're ahead.
3: Knightley is very gentlemanly, and I think that can be suspicious for those who are unused to the gentlemanly chivalrous behavior, you know? It's like, this guy is in love with me. In love with her. What are we supposed to do about it?
0: Yeah. Then it's time for Emma to play the piano forte. And she goes over and it's very sweet. And Knightley is watching her play and he's very in love with her, obviously. And Frank gets up in the middle of her song and starts doing a duet with her. He's got some serious, like, musical theater
1: kid energy in the scene. Big time.
3: It's the kind of thing where when I watch the period versions of these films or miniseries or something, I'm like, this is like, this would make me uncomfortable if this happened at a party. So like, is this uncomfortable for them or was this like happening just left and right? Where we're young men just like joining in on duets? I think, I'm inclined to think it's supposed to be weird.
1: As someone who has been in many musical theater parties in my life, there is a certain culture today where this is not weird. And it's specifically like teenagers at musical theater camp. And so I'm choosing to think that maybe it is something that people used to do for entertainment back in the day and that we have evolved unless you are a big musical theater teenager from like the 21st century.
0: Yeah. Um, During this whole thing, he's kind of staring directly at Jane and Jane looks either mortified or angry during this And Harriet is watching Emma like she's in love with her herself. She's like, oh, my God, you icon, you legend. And then Jane goes to play and he joins her in a duet, too. And they do this like opera song, which is very over the top and like. Just trying a bit too hard for me. Do you think that like if you guys were
3: guests at this party and you were witnessing him like joining Emma and then joining Jane? Would you think like, oh, this guy is like maybe interested in both of them? Or like, would you not think that at all? Like, what, what do you think everyone would be thinking about this?
2: I think it would stir up some gossip at the party. It'd be like, Frank, he gets around. He's singing with <laughs> all the ladies at this party.
0: I mean, it really is the hot musical theater kid. He knows he's hot shit. Um, he has dated everyone in the cast. That's what he's giving. King of the showman's.
3: Yeah, that's so funny. I mean, it's also like such a small town that I was thinking about it. And I'm like, I think, like, if this happened at one party, I would be talking about it for the next 10 years. Like, I don't think I'd be able to like, like, Frank Churchill would not be able to come up in conversation without me being like, remember when he like, just duetted spontaneously, like two times in a row, and then he like (laughs) married neither of them. I don't know, like I that's the kind of thing that I would like be thinking about.
1: (laughs) Well he did marry one of them. He
3: did marry one of them, but and so that was fine. But I'd be like, what was that duet with Emma? Like what was that you know, and even, you know, we now we know because of hindsight that he he's trying to deflect, right? He's trying to make it look like he's not just interested in Jane. But I'd be like, was he just like trying to like Did he like both of them at the same time? Like, what was going
0: on? Totally. Um, While they're singing, Knightley comes to sit next to Emma. And they're talking about Jane's playing. And Emma's like, oh, yeah, glad her fingers were warm. And he says, well, your playing was very elegant. (laughs) And it's very cute. (laughs) I love him. So the next day after this party, Frank comes to Emma's house and he is like I have to tell you something it's clear that I've developed feelings for someone and you've always made me feel so comfortable so I just have to tell you and it's so obvious like watching the movie how much he's not in love with her and how much he is trying to tell her that he's in love with someone else but because in the book we get it all through Emma's perspective it wasn't as obvious I mean it was it was pretty obvious but it wasn't like glaring in your face whereas here it's like oh emma's just a little clueless <laughs> she just... oh yeah
3: <laughs> they should make a movie about that
0: <laughs> you guys actually
1: have no idea how many times molly has accidentally said emma is clueless and then gone wait a minute
0: <laughs> so then we get emma's diary entry and she which is just like dear diary Frank Churchill's in love with me. It's very on the nose, but... Here, here's the thing. This is this is part
1: one of like things I take issue with in this adaptation because I understand that Emma has this inner monologue that we have to gather from the movie, and it's, it's just so on the nose that it's just this voiceover of Emma talking to herself through writing her journal. I'm like,
3: can we not... I find that I really like whatever her journal table writing setup is, with like the journal and like the decorations on her desk or on her table, like that. I'm always like, oh, that's a moment right there. That's a main character moment. But I like it is distracting from the inner monologue because I don't need it because I I got it, I got it.
0: Right, right.
1: It's like we know she's flirting with Frank.
0: <laughs> we know. <laughs> So the next day, Mr. and Mrs. Elton come to visit, and she is so funny. She won't let him get a word in Edgewise. Every time he tries to speak, she just barrels over him, and it is so good. This actress is
3: perfect, I think, because she's just, she dominates the conversation and just talks about things like, I gotta, like, snooze fest. Like, she has nothing interesting to say. And it's just, I think this is where Alan Cumming is so perfect for his role because in the beginning he was quite pompous and he liked to take over the conversation, and now he's just like, huh! you know, like he he starts to talk and then it just doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: She's also like, I don't know who this actress is, but she like she's a very like dominating force on the screen. She's like
2: jacked,
0: Juliet Stevenson, right?
2: Yeah, I know her as the mom from Bend It Like Beckham. Oh my <gasps> god. <sighs> whoa, mic drop moment. (laughs) Yeah. Well done, Yolanda. (laughs) (laughs) That movie is always top of mind for me. So I'm like, that's her.
1: (laughs) What I love about doing a podcast about Jane Austen is that there are so many people who've watched so many British films that come on that inevitably they'll be watching an adaptation and everyone will be like, oh yeah, they're in that movie. And you're like,
3: yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's especially because this was made so long ago. I mean, everyone, like they're just playing everyone here is so young and they're usually playing like parents or older characters. And I like just to remind the people at home that the actress who plays Jane Fairfax is Lady Featherington from Bridgerton. Mm -hmm. I know. Still like the wildest
1: deep cut I could find from this movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So when she brings up the nightly thing... We cut to Emma and Harriet in the carriage and Emma's like nightly. She's never met him in his life and she's calling him nightly. And she's just like talking about how much she hates Mrs. Elton. And while they're driving by, people are passing and she'll be like talking about Mrs. Elton so angrily. And she'll be like, oh, hello, Mrs. Cole. I hate her so much. She's the worst. Oh, hello. And it's so good. Um, And she says there's only one thing we can do for a person like that. We have to throw her a party, which is... The pinnacle of Emma's, like, class status. She's like, people can't know that I don't like her.
3: I love how resigned she sounds about it, too. She's just like, I have no choice. Like, my hands are tied. I have to Mm -hmm. throw her
0: a party. Yeah. Then we cut to Augusta outside the church saying she's so excited for the party and telling them how much she loves Jane and says so she's going to adopt her. And she she says Emma must adopt her with her. They are the, the bells of the ball, essentially. And they need to take her under her wing. And then we cut to Emma with Mr. Knightley and Mrs. Weston. And she's saying that she feels bad for Jane, that Mrs. Elton has taken such a liking to her. And Knightley is saying that Jane doesn't receive attention from people like Emma. So, like, you know could do a little bit more. And Emma's like, well, she receives attention from you, huh? And he's like, what's going on here? Because clearly Mrs. Weston and Emma are like trying to get him to admit that he likes Jane or well, Mrs. Weston is. Ms. Emma's trying to get her, him to admit that she doesn't like Jane. And he's like, uh, uh, I admire her, but not like that.
1: The most perfect thing a Mr. Knightley can do in any adaptation is just
3: short circuit whenever anybody brings up his love life. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. He's like not good at deflecting, but he has to do it so often because there's so much speculation because he's so eligible. Yes.
0: Mm -hmm. When he walks away, Emma is convinced that he does not love Jane and Mrs. Weston is like, he's trying so hard to convince us he doesn't like Jane that I'm convinced. loves her. Then we cut to the party at Emma's house where she tells Knightley that he shamed her and she felt like she should show Jane more attention when he told her that she doesn't show Jane enough attention. And then Mrs. Elton berates Jane for going to the post office in the rain and she's like, Knightley, come here. And she's like, you must tell Jane that she shouldn't be doing things like that. And he's like, uh, take care of yourself, won't you? (laughs) And (laughs) drink soup, please. (laughs) Yeah. And then we see Emma just like glowering in the corner like oh my god does he actually love jane
2: mrs elton really does have the perfect like shrill voice that cuts through everything and i'm sure like everyone's heads are turned to be like who is this woman what is happening right now Mm -hmm. soothing
3: like sandpaper (laughs) yeah no and the funny thing is is i like agree with emma's statement that i feel bad for jane that like this woman has taken an interest in her but i think she's saying it as like a deflection because she's any Jane Fairfax like existing in any conversation Emma's immediately jealous but i don't know can you imagine her being like don't get the mail don't do this don't do that like she's kind of her harriet but she's like an unfit mother mm-hmm. <laughs> like she's doesn't like get that jane fairfax and her are very different social class like i think she gets it like she she knows that and that's why she's able to like boss her around the way that she does But like, I don't know, she's just saying that she can't do these things that she like has to do to live her life and to get her mail.
1: The parallels between Mrs. Elton and Emma and Jane and Harriet are very palpable. I think the class dynamic, the the difference between Harriet and Emma is so much wider than the distance between Mrs. Elton and Jane. But Mrs. Elton acts like it's the same class difference in a way that's very uncomfortable and also at the same time. It's almost an unflattering reflection of Emma's behavior with Harriet to see it reflected so poorly in how Mrs. Weston is treating Jane. Yeah. I mean, not Mrs. Weston, Mrs. Elton. Yeah. Mrs.
3: Weston would never. She looks at all these young ladies adopting other young ladies and it's just like, all right, you guys have read together. Hopefully, you know, do some good.
1: She's thriving with her new husband and his spectacular mustache.
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) He does have a very good mustache. Um, so Mr. Weston, speaking of which, arrives to the party a little late and shares that Frank is coming back. And Jane looks thrilled, quietly. And then we get Emma journaling, deciding she is not in love with Frank, which is a very fast turnaround, because I feel like she just journaled saying, oh my gosh, he's in love with me. This is so great. But she thinks maybe he'd be good for Harriet. Yeah, it's the whole proximity thing. She's like, well, he's not in front of me. So I guess I don't like him anymore.
3: (laughs) Yep. No object permanence. Yes.
0: (laughs) But that's like such a real thing is like, in between seeing someone, do you want to see them again or are they just like not a factor? And that's a big part of it.
3: I mean, I'm sure that's also like a symptom of living in such a small town is like how often are there new people your age? And right. when a new one comes to town, it's like, ooh, like, you know, I get I can see the excitement of like somebody loves me with like no thought about like how you feel about them. And then when he's gone for a while, it's like, well. He doesn't love me. <laughs> that's okay. What's yeah. so interesting
1: about the the way this is done, it's not as clear here as it is in the books, but it's like Emma likes Frank better when he's not there. And then when he's actually there, she's like, he's fine. But then when he's gone, she's like, I'm in love with him. Isn't it cool that I'm in love with him? And then when he comes back, she's like, oh, I really am not in love
3: with him. <laughs> I do think that's an astute observation because so much of the, fr- before we, even, like we don't meet Frank until like, 45 minutes into the movie. And like for a lot of that 45 minutes, she's just like, I hear Frank is supposed to come to this event. Like we, oh, Frank didn't come to Christmas. Like it's like this thing. Like we never stop hearing about this guy who's not real. Exactly. And he's like basically her celebrity crush.
0: I was going to say he's her Canadian boyfriend. He's her Canadian boyfriend. (laughs) So then we get Knightley and Emma playing with Knightley's dogs. And She's, like, trying to get him to come to a ball or a dance. And he says he would rather fetch the stick that he's throwing to his dog than go to a ball. And Emma's like, then I'll have to remember to bring it to the party, (laughs) which I thought was a zinger. I loved it. And he goes, I just want to stay here where it's cozy. And we pan to his giant house. I did love that. Like, he used the word
3: cozy unironically. And he, like, wants to be home petting his dogs.
1: I mean, yeah. This is why... Mr. Knightley's remote behavior just all around is because like who doesn't want a guy who's like I just want to be cozy in my mansion with my
0: dogs I mean yeah kind of perfect yeah so the party at the West Ends um this is a little bit of a wonky timeline thing because I feel like they combined a couple parties from the book into one here but you got to do that when you're adapting a very long book into a movie I guess um Emma and Frank meet in the hall and she's like, what are you waiting for? And he says, oh, uh, Mrs. Elton. But then when Mrs. Elton arrives, it's obvious that he's waiting for Jane because she's driving Jane there. And Miss Bates comes in and she monologues. And I just loved this movie really focused on and highlighted Miss Bates and her monologuing. They just they really kept everything.
1: Again, she's just like such a sad Miss Bates. Like you really just like every time she talks, you're just like, oh, poor honey. Yeah.
3: Yeah. She's great, though. She's so lovely. Like I I actually I love that she appreciates like every single thing she's invited to. Like at this ball, she's like, I feel like I'm in fairyland. Like it's so well decorated. I'm like, that's really nice, Mrs. Bates. No one appreciates things the way you do.
0: (laughs) So true. So then we get the classic Elton snubbing Harriet and Knightley coming and asking Harriet to dance. And Emma in this moment is like, oh, my God, this man, her face lights up. She's so happy that he did that. Um, After the dance, she pulls him aside and she's like, that was so kind of you. And he says, why did the Elton seem to want to snub you, too? And she's like, oh, no reason. And he's like, you did want Harriet to get with Mr. Alton, didn't you? And she's like, oh, yes, and they'll never forgive me.
3: I feel like this scene, because they're like outside and like the you can see the ball happening inside mm-hmm. with like these big windows. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this scene has very similar energy to the Greta Gerwig little women when like um, yes. Laurie and Joe are like outside kind of like, I don't know being mischievous and like fun outside because he's like trying to he's trying to goad this answer out of her like Emma like do they really hate Harriet or is this something to do with like getting back at you like this is like mission impossible level vengeance where it's like I'm going to take the thing I'm going to get back at you by hurting the people you love you know mm-hmm. and it's just like such a like almost like a very sexy scene the way he's like Emma like tell me tell me the truth what's happening
1: well, what it is is it's like a giant group scene. It's a huge party where everyone in the town is. And they it's a capturing of an outside intimate moment where you're not supposed to be intimate. You're supposed to be at a big ball. And so it gives you like a moment of tenderness uh, between the two of them outside of the larger community that they are supposed to be participating in.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just love the way he says, Emma... <laughs>
3: I also wonder, like, I don't know if it's, like, answered or if it matters, but does Knightley know that Elton asked Emma to marry him? Mm-mm. Like, I feel like that piece of information, like, if I were Mrs. Elton, I think I would hate Emma so much more for, like, being proposed to first
0: yeah, than...
3: Oh, she tried to throw her friend at me like a football. Does she know, though? I I suspect Elton told zero people. Like, I think he told nobody that that happened because it was just such a sharp rejection.
0: I think that what he did was he talked a lot of shit about Emma and Harriet to Mrs. Elton. So she just assumes like, oh, I hate them. But Emma doesn't want Knightley to know that they have any reason to hate her And so that's why she's so relieved when he thinks it's just that she tried to set him up with Harriet and not that she rejected his proposal because she doesn't want him to know that at all. I feel like that should be a scene
3: like where's the scene like to make Knightley even more perfect, more sort of like romance fictional boyfriend material. Like where's the scene where he finds out that like not only did he propose, but like in a deeply uncomfortable and kind of controlling way where like they were alone in a carriage. And he like threw this hissy fit when she was, uh, when she rejected him. And he's just like, where is he? Like Batman, like, where is he? I don't know if that would happen. (laughs) I don't know if that's nightly behavior, but I just feel like we never get that moment because I think that's probably the much bigger crime than like, oh, you should talk to my friend Harriet. And I'm sure it's something Elton would tell no one. And I I agree with what you said that, It would just be like one day he's like, isn't Emma the best? Wouldn't she like make an amazing wife? And the next day he's like, screw Emma. Like she's the worst person I've ever met.
1: I think that Jane Austen punishes Elton for his behavior by giving him Augusta Hawkins, a.k.a. Mrs. Elton. And I think that that is the punishment he must bear. And Mrs. Elton's punishment is ultimately Jane Fairfax becoming higher status
0: than her. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of Knightley being a dreamboat, he tells Emma that he was, like, very pleasantly surprised by Harriet. And then Mr. Weston comes over and is like, it's the last dance. Come on. And he says, whom are you going to dance with? And she goes, with you, if you'll ask me. And it is everything that I ever dreamed it would be. She goes, after all, we are not brother and sister and he goes brother and sister no indeed we are not and then he like bites his lip <laughs> in a very sexy way
3: he like goes down like a whole octave in his voice like he lowers his voice and said like to himself like indeed we mm-hmm. are not and i'm like stop
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it's really a lot and then the dance that follows is hot even by today's standards like they're almost touching hands they're pulling away it's just like they're looking at each other so longingly it is a sexy sexy dance
3: well I was just gonna say like I don't know if you guys have ever like danced these regency dances but Yolanda and I have been to a couple of Jane Austen balls and what's (laughs) interesting and what's interesting about these balls is even if you have a partner a lot of them actually is like you dance as a group like you're either Mm -hmm. like a group of four or a group of six and like It's actually a lot more of like dancing with a group than like with your own partner. And I think part of what makes this dance like kind of sexy is that it really is much more one on one. Like it's just kind of like them almost touching and the not almost touching in a way that doesn't happen with a lot of these country dances.
0: Totally. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now, Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love in Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Then there's like a weird fade out. Like, it's a made-for-TV movie that I didn't love. (laughs) Um, Followed by Harriet and Emma on a walk when they are robbed. And Frank rescues them. Is this the one where she's, like, on the ground and there's all of these, like, adult men and women, like, grabbing her and she's screaming? This
1: is, again, one of those uh, moments where I think the movie misses the mark a little bit. Um, For one we now understand the implications of so stereotyping Romani people. But um, also, the way it's written in the book is that, like, Jane Austen is trying to make fun of how little happens in this town that, like, a bunch of kids are chasing after Harriet and making her all scared. And it's, like, the biggest deal in the world. Whereas, like, this is high drama and it's, like, made into a high drama moment. And the fact that Emma's there to witness it and see it become high drama, it just, like, doesn't make sense. Like, why is Frank... rescuing Harriet like is like when Emma's also there like why are the people going for Harriet not Emma it's just like I have questions it's a weird scene I don't love it
3: (laughs) yeah it's like an assault scene
2: (laughs) yeah I was re-watching it and it's like they go after Harriet because she is carrying a coin purse I guess maybe Emma just didn't carry something so that's why they went after Harriet but even still I think in the book Emma isn't with her is that right yeah so this is supposed to just happen to Harriet and then Emma just is helpless in this scene. She's just like crying out and just looking down at Harriet too. Yeah. Yeah. And like in the book,
1: it goes again to Emma being this sort of like sheltered romantic person where she hears about this story and it sounds so exciting and romantic that she like impresses upon it a love story between Frank and Harriet. And the fact that Emma sees it here and is like privy to it gives Emma almost too much experience to think there's a love story there. And it's also really like, it's kind of stupid that Emma attaches so much meaning to it in the book. But um, in this scene, it's obviously this highly dramatic thing where Frank does look like a dashing hero. And I think it kind of like changes how the scene makes Emma think about Frank and Harriet as a couple and also about her sheltered nature.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I think the big part too is like making sure that like for Emma to witness it, she's like oh see well Frank did this grand romantic thing of like rescuing Harriet this is what Harriet's talking about. like obviously in the in the miscommunication that comes up she's like well i thought the nightly asking you to dance was going to be like the big romantic thing but no she thinks like oh no it's Frank rescuing her that's that the big um kind of mix up here.
3: Right. And not only that, I mean, the the ball where Knightley rescues her and the attack scene are, are usually like literally one happened that night, one happened the next day. And I feel like we're kind of like Emma witnesses the kind of aftermath of Harriet being saved because like he helps her to her house. He like kisses her hand, Harriet's hand before he leaves. Like it's a moment that I like I kind of get it. And, you know, Emma's also there for that one, and she she only kind of, like, saw Knightley asking her to dance, like, while she herself was on the dance floor.
0: Right. Yeah. So, after they're back home and safe, Harriet decides that it's time to get over Elton fully, and she wants to destroy her most precious treasures. She's got her gauze. She's got her pencil. She throws them in the fire, and... Emma thinks to herself, goodbye, Mr. Elton. Hello, Mr. Mr. Churchill. And it's so corny. It's so...
1: I love that line, though, because it just shows how dumb Emma is. Because, like, you get all these... No more matchmaking. And then it's immediately, like, fr- out of the... What is it? Out of the frying pan and into the fire. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Then we cut to strawberry picking. And this is, like, a combination Box Hill and Donwell situation I think they're just at Donwell Emma plants the idea in this moment to Harriet saying like I think you're developing feelings for someone greater things have happened and Harriet of course thinks they're talking about Mr. Knightley and Emma of course thinks they're talking about Frank and then we get Mrs. Elton saying she found a job for Jane and a quick zoom in on Frank's face being like huh And uh, he immediately goes to say he wants to play a game where everyone tries to make Emma laugh by saying one thing very clever, two things moderately clever or three dull things. In this moment, I notice that the flirting between them is way played down. And I think that that's just something throughout this movie where I don't I don't see any chemistry between Frank and Emma. Um, But maybe that's just me.
2: They seem more like
0: conspiring
2: friends to me. It it seems more like they're they're. The two friends like in the back of the room making fun of everyone and gossiping about everything. I don't see the chemistry either. Right. In
3: true theater
2: kid fashion. (laughs) One theater kid to another. Yes, they get each other. Yeah, totally.
1: That's exactly what this is.
2: I also think it
1: um, sort of, again, exonerates the characters a little because this is one of those moments where the um, understated direction in which the film is taken kind of bothers me because... I want to see Frank being absolutely outrageous. I want to see him, you know, playing fast and loose with two women's reputations and being sort of awful in a way that we need to grapple with as consumers of the content. And I feel like here it's just sort of like he's being a little bit shitty. Yeah.
3: I mean, I I like don't know if this has anything to do with anything, but I've like read interviews where Ewan McGregor has been like, yeah, I feel bad. I wasn't great in that role. (laughs) <laughs> and no, like I, I first, I think we all thought it was the wig and they were like, oh, he's handsome. Let's make him friend Frank Churchill. Like he's a charismatic guy. But no, I, I agree that like we kind of like he, he's just like kind of shitty and it makes you like not even like it. It kind of demystifies the potential love triangle of the situation.
1: Yeah. At no point does he feel like a real competitor to Knightley because Jeremy Northam is so handsome and so charming and yeah. so. It doesn't, the stakes feel much lower in that circumstance.
3: Yeah. This guy just voted for Hillary.
1: Right. <laughs> he liked her
0: so much he copied her haircut. Yeah. So um, Mrs. Elton doesn't want to play this game and she refuses and goes for a walk. And I think that Emma is annoyed by this, which kind of sparks her being a little bit more snippy and sparks her saying the thing to Miss Bates, which she does. And Miss Bates is like, oh, I can Oh, okay. I can't believe she would say that to an old friend. And it's very heartbreaking. Um, and you can see on Knightley's face, like the the shock at her having said it, the immediate fury that she would do such a thing. And he immediately takes Miss Bates away and is like, let's go pick some strawberries together. And she's like, oh, yes, that would be very nice. Thank you. I love her. In every single adaptation,
3: I hate this scene. And I usually have to fast forward through it just because it's so awful. And Miss Bates is so sweet. And she just she really like blames herself immediately. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not even like this thought of, oh, how could she say this? She's like, oh, how could I embarrass Emma? How could like she just like she takes that on immediately, and it's so yeah. awful.
2: It's a great performance by the actress where she's like, I will try to hold my tongue. And I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't have to do that. Emma's just being awful to you right now. Oh, I know. And she's generally awful to you, but yeah. you don't notice it.
0: <laughs> right. Knightley then chases after Emma and like grabs her arm and turns her around and tells her all about how she should have compassion for miss Bates's situation and he says badly done emma and this of course makes emma cry and he like walks away and he turns around he's like it doesn't give me pleasure to say these things and she won't look at him because she's crying and she's so embarrassed and it's so like heartbreaking and his voice cracks and he's just like wants her to be the best that she can be Um, I have a note here that says I always have to point out penis pants. It's just that his pants, like...
1: You can see the penis.
0: You can just see all of his junk. I just have to point it out. I had to point it out with Colin Firth. I have to point it out now. It's just a thing in this time period, apparently.
1: Like, they was all prim and proper until I came to designing the pants for the men.
3: (laughs) I mean, it's just like the cod piece, right? Like, the way that you put the pants on is you, like, have this flat... Strip of fabric that covers your front, and whatever you have is just on display.
0: (laughs) It really is. It it draws my attention away from the scene a little bit, but
1: (laughs) nothing to be done. This is so funny because I was about to be like, I was critical of this movie, I was harsh, but this is one scene I really do think is good in this movie. Well, it it is good, yeah. Yeah. It's a great scene. Because I think one of my criticisms of this movie is that Knightley and Emma don't fight enough because they're both really passionate people and they like... In this movie, there's a lot of bickering and, like, smiling at each other and everything. But this is one of the only scenes where they genuinely get into it with each other. And I think it's crucial to the story that they do because it is both, you know, Mr. Knightley's intense nagging and the fact that Emma deserves it that, like, really just... Tie together the love story in the end. So the fact that it happens here, where Box Hillgate happens and it's the worst moment, like the the most cringe moment in any Jane Austen story ever, um I think I think it's just really necessary to make the story
3: work to have them really fight it out, yeah. And I mean, he really spells out why what she did was so wrong. He's like, she's poor. Like, I wouldn't be yelling at you if this were, like, one of the other women of your class. But, like, people look to you as an example. She's poorer than when she was born. And the older she gets, the poorer she'll be. And you just can't treat her like this. And I was like, yeah, you tell her.
2: (laughs) Get her. (laughs) Get her. Get her nightly.
3: No, and it's (laughs) like, I, she really actually starts to grow from this moment because Mm -hmm. she's like, he's right. He's not being unfair. I was the one being unfair you know she's kind of been letting her emotions get to her and she's been letting all these other people get to her and she hurt someone else because of her own hurt and it's when she really you know it's where she goes and she um goes to visit the Bates women and and really like apologizes and and she still she kind of punishes herself for a while after this and I think that's when Knightley starts to notice like okay she's She's not gone. She's not completely gone.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she goes to the Bateses and in this adaptation, Miss Bates is the one who says, tell her I'm laying down upon the bed mother and and not well. In the book, she comes and talks to Emma and says, Jane is not well. But because this Jane Emma competition has been played down a little bit in this adaptation, they really focus on the wrong that she has done to Miss Bates as what is driving her going and visiting and Miss Bates is so hurt and embarrassed that she hides from her and like won't come to see her and when Emma comes back home Knightley is there and her father's like oh yes she was visiting the Bateses she's so kind to them and and she says that she's shown them charity but not kindness which some friends may doubt she still has and he says the truest friend does not doubt but hope and they have this moment of like I'm in love with you And they look at each other and he says he has to leave. And she says that she wishes that she could have arrived sooner so they could have talked. And he says, me too. And there's a lot of tension between them. He tells her he has to see his brother about a delicate and perplexing matter, which makes her kind of go, what is that? Then she writes in her diary some more telling us that Frank's aunt is dead. And which she just apparently knows. <laughs> yeah, this just happened. And she hopes that she'll be friends with Miss Bates again soon. And that's her update when Mr. Weston comes running to tell her to come to Mrs. Weston when they tell her that Frank and Ga- Jane are engaged. And Emma just like can't compute. She's like, what? <laughs>
3: Yeah, she's like, so soon? And they're like, no, it was a secret the whole time. Like, he didn't, like, his aunt wasn't going, because that was, like, the whole thing is, like, the reason why their engagement had to be a secret was because Frank Churchill's aunt wouldn't have left him her fortune if he was going to marry a lady of lowborn means. And so, like, honestly, I'm kind of like, I know Frank was kind of shitty, but good for him. He waited it out. He got the fortune. He got to marry his dream girl. Like he's set. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a
1: uh, real grayness to Frank's character, which makes me really like him. Maybe not like like him in terms of enjoy like liking his character, but enjoy him as a story, because there's so few characters that live in this precise shade of gray in Austin works. A lot of them are either villains or heroes, and he's definitely a little shitty but also you feel bad for him because he really doesn't have a lot of control over his own life. And then you have Knightley who just decides he's the luckiest
3: bastard on the face of the planet and gets everything he wants. Frank Churchill reminds me a lot of Willoughby from Sense and Sensibility, who's like another gray area character who like also, like doesn't like, similarly, like he wants to marry Marianne, but can't because he won't inherit his fortune. And so he jilts her, marries a rich girl he doesn't love and like forever has to miss out on the fact that he will not ever have like the woman he truly loves.
1: Yeah, I think Willie Willoughby is a really interesting character, but I also think he is more of a villain than Frank because of how he treats Brandon's ward Yeah, and everything that happens there. And I think that he's a victim of his own bad behavior Whereas I think with Frank, he gets trapped in a bad situation and his feelings bubble up in a very toxic way for him. But I ultimately think he never crosses a line into an unredeemable area. Yeah. And therefore, if he is a good husband to Jane for the rest of their lives, I think his actions are in the end kind of justified.
2: I mean, that was the thing to an extent, like, does Frank cross the line at all with Emma? Because like everyone is concerned, like, Emma are you okay with the news? Like, how are you responding to everything? Like, are you shocked? And she's like, I'm fine. I got over him already. Like, I'm more worried about Harriet. Um, But for for everyone, they think like, oh, they were clearly the ones who were going to be the match. But obviously, they had a bigger secret that no one knew.
1: It begs the question of whether like the consequences of your actions have an effect on how bad your actions were. Because like, Frank's level of flirting was outrageous, and he got lucky that Emma didn't like him back. And he says he knew that she didn't like him back, but did he? I don't know. I, I. This is a conversation we had on the podcast when we did the book. I think it's a, it's an open question as to whether or not he's the line crossing was so bad with Frank as to make him a little bit more of a villain in the story, just because. He got lucky that the woman he targeted was a high-status woman who was in love with another guy.
2: Yeah, I think if she did reciprocate those feelings, it would have been a different situation. And I think there would have been more of a fallout between, like, Frank and everyone in society. So they he lucked out. Yeah. <laughs> Even for Emma, she's like, oh, I, I also kind of got away out of this unscathed because I didn't like him either.
3: Yeah. And she was worried about Harriet and she didn't even like him either. Like no one liked, <laughs> no, one. no one was actually crushing on Frank Churchill this whole time. He's like this handsome, charismatic new kid in town. And I don't know, he's just the kind of guy that all the men are like, like nightly is like worrying about for no reason. And all the women are like, I can see how some women would see that he's attractive and no one actually is crushing on
1: him. <laughs> That's why they gave him the wig to justify the fact that no girls in the story have a crush on him.
3: (laughs) I could just see that conversation where like Ewan McGregor like walks in and they put him in the pants and they're like, this won't do. Everyone, everyone is in love with him. We've got to tone it down. Yeah. (laughs) They went too far in the other
1: direction. Yeah.
3: He's hotter than Knightley. That can't, we can't have that. They can't have as much chemistry as Knightley and Emma.
1: Churchill is supposed to be hotter than Knightley, I think.
3: I mean, he's supposed to be, like, young. Like, he's young. He's, like, Emma's age. He's, like, early 20s. He's, like, an upshot. He's, like, the rookie and knightly. You know, he's, like, in his mid to late 30s. You know, he's just, like, you know, if we're, like, breaking down, like, romance tropes, he's, like, your billionaire CEO who, like, has all his stuff and he's good-looking and rich, but, like, actually more, in, like, a quiet way. And Frank Churchill is just, like, Yeah, like he'll—he's like running around. He's like a man of action. The Mm -hmm. Timothy Chalamet, if you will. Story. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So Emma goes to tell Harriet because she is very worried about her, and Harriet, you know, doesn't care, and the whole misunderstanding comes to light. And Emma immediately, upon figuring it out, bursts into tears, and she's like, "What's going to be done about this? This is awful." And Harriet is so sweet; she's like, "Must something be done about it?" And they go back and forth, and Harriet, like, just doesn't, you know, understand why Emma's crying, and Emma's like, oh my god, this is awful, and she goes to tell Mrs. Weston, because we get that, you know, inner monologue coming out via her friendship with Mrs. Weston, that she realized that she was so jealous because no one can marry Knightley but herself. She's in love with him, and it is just, like, this heart-wrenching moment, and also one of the funniest moments in the movie because, after she figures that out, she says that she's not going to know uh, how to react, how to uh, interact with Knightley when he returns. She says if he's if he's happy, uh, then I'll know that John advised him to marry Harriet, and I won't be able to let him tell me. But if he's sad, then I'll know John advised him not to marry Harriet. And then she goes, "I love John," and then she says. Or he may seem sad because he doesn't want to tell me that he's going to marry my best friend. How could John let him do that? I hate John. That's great. Favorite moment in the movie. Um, she also at one point goes, Harriet's parents could be pirates. She's just like completely 180s <laughs> on everything. I know, she now did. she's
2: going to like take down harriet's whole reputation she's like we don't know who they are yeah like what What have you what have you people been doing this whole time you trusted me no <laughs> we can't trust this girl at all
1: well that's the class dynamics like entirely at work because it makes emma suddenly understand class so quickly when she realizes that harriet wants something that she wants suddenly all that time she was like oh my god everyone's being so fucking classist towards harriet everyone's being so mean to her and suddenly when harriet's in her way it's like this low-class gold-digging bitch is
0: in my way yeah she really doesn't uh she lets her true colors shine here and it's not attractive
1: shine's the wrong word
0: yeah um So then we get another Dear Diary moment, and it's all Emma trying not to think about Knightley. She's, like, miserable. She goes high drama. She goes to the church, and she prays that Knightley will stay single forever. I love this scene so much, because she's like, dear God, either let him be with me,
3: or please let him have no one. And we keep things exactly as they are, and he comes and visits me every day,
0: whenever. Amen. (laughs) Yeah, it's hilarious. And then one day she's walking and she runs into Knightley and she goes, are you happy? (laughs) Which is so good thinking about her. I love John. I hate John monologue. And it's just so awkward. Neither of them knows what to do. And he says he has to ask her something. And she immediately cuts him off to tell him about Frank and Jane. And he's like, oh, yes, I wanted to see if you were okay," And she's like, I'm fine. And so he starts to tell her how he feels. And she says, don't don't say something that will hurt us both to have said. And he's like, oh, okay, very well. And he like walks away and then like takes his whip and snaps it at the ground because he's like, dang it. I was going to tell her I loved her and I got foiled again. (laughs) And she then follows him because she's like, fuck, he wanted to talk to me. I'm his best friend. What did I what have I done? So she says, listen if you want to talk to me as a friend, then I'll be there for you as a friend, which is exactly how it's written in the book. And it's like one of my favorite things because she's so unintentionally friend zoning him here. And he's like, can you stop saying friend? I don't want to be friends. And then we get the proposal. And for so long, it was going so well. It was very swoon worthy. But then he didn't say the thing. He didn't say the thing.
2: He didn't say the line. If I loved
1: you less, I might be able to talk about it more. The most iconic line from Emma by Jane Austen. And in this movie that was trying to win Oscars, they just decided they did not
2: need it.
3: Ridiculous and wrong. Criminal.
2: I wonder if there's like a deleted scene or something where like they they filmed it at all or was it just like a complete omission of this iconic line it's like really baffling to think like why would you leave out this line there's like there's like a, you know all in all these adaptations there's kind of like these key moments and key lines that people quote and there's merch of it everywhere so why wouldn't you <laughs> include it in we this? want answers
3: i feel like them not having this line is more criminal than if they had left out badly done, Emma. I feel like this was the more iconic romantic one and it was a crime.
1: Absolutely. Like this movie, like I have my issues with it. I've voiced them multiple times, but the fact that they leave out the most iconic line, the arrogance of thinking you can top Jane Austen in romance
2: badly done writers <laughs> badly done indeed <laughs>
3: that's
2: great uh, i think it is a bit of that though i think it is that attitude of like we're doing jane austen but better like here's how we're improving it or here's how we're combining characters or making the frank thing more obvious or whatever it's like all these choices i think are them just like trying to they're in their eyes i think heighten the story but i think the story speaks for itself and like all the material is so clearly there and I think you know it's just a different approach I think these were all um American producers in a, in a studio so I think there is just a difference between how Americans approach adaptations versus when there are UK adaptations I think there's a little more reverence for the word and the works mm, yeah totally
0: yeah yeah I was gonna <laughs> I was trying to think of an American equivalent to Jane Austen someone that we might revere in that way but I can't think of Anyone
3: like someone that the like British producers like have to make this movie like either by an American author or like about an American. I don't think they do that.
0: Yeah. Like I get like if you're doing like a streetcar named Desire or something. I was
1: going to say some Tennessee Williams gets lost in translation when they do it overseas just because there's something so deeply American about that work. But I think, yeah, it's just here. It's just one of those things where. If you don't know Jane Austen well, maybe you don't know how crucial that line is. But like, from my perspective, I'm kind of like, you don't cut the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet, like, unless you're Baz Luhrmann and (laughs) are trying something new, but whatever. Um, It just feels like it was written there, the most romantic line of all time. And you could have just swiped it in and placed it there. But I guess you decided you didn't need it.
3: It's weird because it's not even like they tried to replace the line or anything. It's not like they tried to rewrite it and would obviously make it worse. But it's just like clearly it ended up on the cutting room floor. And like, I don't know what those arguments are. Hopefully, like if I were like the filmmaker in favor of this line, I would be like, this is the hill that I die on. It's possible they died on more hills and they were like, I'm not dying for one line.
1: Do you know the meme where it's like the horse that's being drawn and it starts off like, really like beautifully drawn and then it keeps going and it gets like the sloppier until it's a stick figure. I feel like that's this movie in that they like put so much effort into the front half and they like don't cut anything. And like the pacing through the Mr. Elton plot line is so slow. And then you get past Box Hill and it all speeds up. And it's like this is the crux of the story. It's Emma getting humbled. It's Emma finding love. It's Emma coming to these realizations about Harriet. And you're rushing this part? Yeah. The Jade Fairfax Frank Churchill reveal?
3: There's a lot of, this is the kind of plot where a lot of loose ends need to be tied up at the end. Like it's, you can't just like leave on a guessing note. Like it's like a game of chess. Like you have to like, you can't leave any move unplayed here.
0: Yeah. So they kind of make up for it in making them make out, which happens <laughs> next. Um, They, they make out And then he's like, let's go to your father. And she's like, oh, my God, my father. I can't leave my father. And he then says that he'll come to Hartfield. And it's, you know, a lovely moment. It's a bit of
1: whiplash, but. Yeah, it's
0: a little whiplash. But then the narrator says, uh, the elation Mr. Woodhouse felt was soon shared by everyone else. And I was just like, what elation? I mean. (laughs) (laughs) We obviously are uh, in a different time period now than we were then. And it is reasonable to expect that a father would be happy for his daughter getting married. But I think that they, you know, they didn't even have any of the amusement of Mr. Woodhouse being like, wait, what? You're going to leave me? And uh, the turkeys that happened in the the book? Yeah, the turkey theft is just completely cut. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I'm glad that we get... Emma's dad being happy for her in exchange for the turkey theft. What Um, I
1: don't like, and you're about to go into it, is that they tell Harriet that Emma tells Harriet that she and Knightley are engaged and breaks Harriet's heart again when that's not book accurate.
0: But to be fair, I feel like she owes that to Harriet a little bit
1: but in the in the book, you get the sense that like she gets to go for who she wanted all along at the end.
0: she, she totally. but I, I've always felt a little bit icky about the fact that Emma just like sent Harriet off with her sister to kind of give them space to Canoodle in public. and then, like, Harriet comes back with, you know Mr. Martin, and it's great. but I just I felt like Emma should have told Harriet all along, so I didn't actually hate that she tells her here. I, I kind of liked it for their friendship. The next scene, however, is Harriet coming in a couple weeks later to Emma and she tells her that she has something to tell her that's uh might be unpleasant. And Emma says, nothing you could ever say could ever be unpleasant, which is a nice parallel from the beginning when Emma says that to Harriet. And Harriet's like, nothing you could say would ever be unpleasant. Um, And she reveals that she's engaged to Mr. Martin. And I feel like this really highlights that without Emma meddling in her affairs, she was able to make her own decision and have a little agency and be like, yes, I do want to marry Mr. Martin after all. And they're a happy little ending.
3: I do like I mean that's I get that it you know it like it's a different creative choice to have Emma like break the news to Harriet in person and she's very sad but I feel like in a way Harriet Harriet needed that one last breakdown in order to realize that she doesn't actually need Emma's permission to live her life the way that she wants to and like the fact that she didn't say like oh what should I do about like trying to get Mr. Martin back, and she just kind of, like, handles that on her own and comes back with a fiancé is, like, very good growth for Harriet. It is. I would only
1: counter that what I like in the books is that she comes to that conclusion without having been broken down that last time. What I like is that Emma doesn't have to break her down. When she sees the reluctance that Emma approaches her crush on Knightley with, she just decides on her own, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to make my own decisions without Emma and her own decisions led her to Robert Martin in a way that Emma didn't need to swipe her man to bring her to that conclusion. It just obviously it's super convenient for Emma that she didn't have to break Harriet's heart again. But I I liked that because it, it felt more like, oh, now I can't have Mr. Knightley. I guess I'll have Robert Martin. It was more. Oh, I don't actually want Mister Knightley. I have Robert Martin, and now that I've freed myself from Emma's grasp, I can go for him. So that—that that was my gripe with it. It's not a huge gripe. My in the grander scheme of the movie, I think my bigger problems are with the pacing and the direction and Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, portrayal of Emma. But this—this this, like one little thing—I was kind of like, oh, and you didn't have to break Harriet's heart again.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well. After that, all that's left is for Emma and Knightley to get married, and they do, and everyone lived happily ever after, and that's the end of the movie. You missed the cut to camera from Mrs. Elton. Oh, yes. She (laughs) turns directly to the camera and says, if you ask me, there was a shocking lack of satin. What an odd choice to do that right at the end, like... Talking directly to camera. Right. This movie didn't have a lot of rules set out for its world. Like all the transitions lived in different universes. And there was sometimes a narrator. There was sometimes Emma narrating her own thoughts and feelings. And apparently sometimes we look directly at the camera and talk like we're in the office. Yeah. Sometimes Emma's inner, inner monologue
1: was uh, her diary. Sometimes it was to Mrs. Weston. Uh, no set rule with that either. It was, you know, that's that's generally like my problem with this movie it's just not clean in the way that some other adaptations are like they have a specific vision and aesthetic and way they want to tell the story this felt like we they were adapting certain scenes in a way that they thought was fun but it didn't come up to a a whole adaptation that I thought was doing anything interesting yeah it wasn't cohesive yeah Yeah. no
3: cohesion I think this is like you know, in terms of like what had been made of Emma theatrically, this was definitely like the most star studded adaptation that had ever been made. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah, the whole thing does play out. It makes me feel like we're kind of in the theater and it's set up like a theater, but like with kind of these, you know, like they're very beautiful sets. Like it's a beautiful movie. The costumes are beautiful, but it does fall flat. In several ways and I, I agree with like the inconsistencies and and a lot of the times it's just really dark when it was at night like i get the candlelit glow and everything but then i'm just kind of like who are we talking to i can't really see what's happening um so yeah
1: all right that brings us to the end of the 1996 adaptation of emma starring gwyneth paltrow and now we're That brings us to Becca's study questions, our standbys for the movie. So we're going to ask all four um, and go round and say our
0: answers to each one,
1: starting with favorite line delivery.
0: So I think for this half, my favorite line delivery is, there's only one thing to do with a person as impossible as she. I must throw a party for her. I'm going to give it to
1: Badly Done Emma.
3: Oh, yeah, that's a good one.
1: Yeah. Whispered.
3: That was going to be mine, too. I love Badly. Actually, you know what? Because I'm going to change mine to nightly when he's like, like, indeed, we are not like about being si- mm. not being siblings like that was mm-hmm. a great one.
2: I liked Emma's. Um, I love John. I hate John <laughs> delivery that that kind of back and forth in her head. I'm like, I get it. Yeah, that, get it. that's
0: such a good moment. Yeah. Uh, OK. Notable changes from book to movie. I think that the biggest thing in this part would probably be Emma telling Harriet the truth about her and nightly right away and like having that we've already discussed it but having her break her heart and then she goes off and does her own thing um I'll give it to the lack of if I loved you less I
3: might be able to talk about it more mm-hmm. that was mine my... <laughs> if
1: I loved that line less I would probably
2: talk about it less is all I'll say yeah yeah. yeah yeah
3: no I I can't think of a bigger gripe I have than that one right there
2: I agree me too <laughs> <laughs>
1: Then uh, we're going to do worst part of the movie and best part of the movie. Um, Start with worst because we'll end on a positive note. The
0: worst for me is the pacing overall. I just I didn't think they did a good job of pacing.
1: Yeah, I would agree with the pacing. I'm going to give it overall to the direction of the movie. I think it was just like fighting the fun that is Emma as a story. For no reason and ma- try, making it sort of drier and more like this is a Regency era adaptation than actually like engaging with how fun and
2: funny the material is. I agree with overall direction because I feel like they just treat the audience as dumb and like we're not going to get it. So they really need to overstate a lot of these things through her diary entries, through like voiceover. So I feel like they they really try to be heavy handed with a lot of like the hints and sort of thing. But yeah, that's just like, we we know, I don't know. I feel like even if you're someone who's not familiar with the story, you could pick up on those things. But yeah. for some reason, they feel like the need to really point those things out. Absolutely.
3: I'm just going to go with you and McGregor's wig because um, I agree with all of you. But I think that like it is like a crime what they did to that man's head.
1: <laughs> Again, it is so hard to make him ugly. It's so hard to make him unattractive. He's so handsome, especially in this era. And uh, yes. All, all this to say yes, 100%. Um, best parts of the movie? Miss um, Bates, for me. She just killed it. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give it to Jeremy Northam. I think he's a pretty good nightly. I think he is really kind of classic nightly. He's not my favorite nightly, but he might be my favorite part of the overall end of the film, if that makes sense.
3: I think... Even though they suck as characters, I'm going to give it to the actors who played the Elton's because yes. mm. I just think that, you know, you dislike them. But it's so fun to dislike them because of the performances and and because of, you know, Alan Cumming, just like the way that he's kind of like cluelessly about himself at the beginning and is so sure of his status especially like in emma's mind and then just like the way he's just like such second fiddle to his wife once he has one and how she's like the star of like she's like the queen of the room or like tries to be and like we kind of hate her for it but it's it's like a deliberate performance choice it's not like the writing does the work for this actress like she brought a lot to the role
2: Um, I really liked the dynamic between Emma and Mrs. Weston. I feel like that's something that sometimes can get lost in adaptations of having like that motherly figure for her. And I feel like she is someone she really turns to in this adaptation of like, and yes, they use it more for like trying to get the thoughts from Emma out of her. But I don't know. I think I liked seeing that dynamic play out a little more in the foreground than just kind of her appearing at the beginning and then fading away. And last but not
0: least, who wins the movie? I think, for me, Jeremy Northam's smirk, his like little sideways hmm, just because there are so many moments throughout the whole movie where that just adds a little lightness to moments that could otherwise be boring, heavy, uh he could be angry without any romance, um so his his winning
1: smile. <laughs> Um, I'll give it to Gwyneth, uh, not because I like her in this movie. I've made it very clear I don't care for her performance, but she won this movie in so far as it launched her career, and she's extremely successful now. So good for you, Gwyneth. <laughs> I feel
3: like Jane Fairfax won the movie because, like, she got you know her dream guy, and then she got to be elevated above so many of these other women who are so condescending to her, including and more particularly Mrs. Elton. And she gets to be rich and in love with the guy that she loves the whole time. And maybe he gets a haircut. <laughs> and she was like kind of innocent in his shenanigans. I almost said Frank Churchill one because he got everything he wanted. But I'm sure some people kind of hate him a little bit. And I feel like Jane Fairfax kind of gets to be like, oh, what? Me? I
2: was just trying to protect my reputation, you know? I do like Gwyneth as Emma, even though there's issues with how her Emma is in this movie. I feel like she's very good at the wistful look out the carriage or just kind of like finding the light and having it shine just so perfectly on her. So I feel like she's just a very picturesque Emma and she really knows how to like look the part and play the part in that way. Even like her tiny little looks like reactions that you kind of catch at times. I feel like that was really fun to see. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, that concludes our goop, Emma. It's it's all good. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, do you want to tell the people where they can find you?
3: Yes. So you can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, threads, and Twitter at The Pemberley. And uh, we also have a Patreon that you can find us on at The Pemberley. Uh, you can email us with comments, questions, anything, thoughts at the Pemberley podcast at gmail.com.
0: And you can listen to the Pemberley podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for having us. This, is, this has been a lot of fun. Yes. It's been a long time coming, uh,
1: a crossover Jane Austen pod episode. On that note, to our listeners of this podcast, that is the end of our Gwyneth coverage. We will be starting our Anya coverage with Emma 2020 next time. So in two weeks. So get ready with that. Well, then, until next time, stay proper. And don't cut the most
0: crucial line of a book when you're adapting it into a movie. You would think. One would think. *Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by SpeechDocs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com podandprejudice to see how you can support us, or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.